0: it never gets old a first-hand account of all things secondhand and sustainable this is a podcast about the resale secondhand fashion economy how it's exploding and then by proxy sustainable fashion and what that means for the planet and our wallets i am your host meredith Feynman, and my bestie in the westie sarah lane will be editing this but i am joined in new york city by meg he who is one of the co-founders of a very cool sustainable fashion brand called a day hello Hello, I'm so excited to be here. I'm really happy to have you. This is like, you know, we're in this teeny recording box, which feels a little bit like impending doom, but we're working with it. Uh, Thrilled you can join, like tell everyone who you are.
1: Absolutely. So I am Meg He. I'm the co-founder of a day. We are a direct consumer brand and we make clothing that really helps you do more with less. So the whole kind of philosophy and our mission is to create versatile clothing that, you know, you only have to have a few of in your wardrobe and that you can do a lot more with it a lot of our fabrics are sustainable and we are working very hard um, on this mission to make fashion a lot more sustainable because we think ultimately it's just the best thing for mother earth I started the company with my co-founder Nina Foyhaber we originally met at Goldman Sachs in investment banking, and a lot of my career has been at this sort of, you know, cross-section between fashion and e-commerce. In my high school years, I was an eBay power seller specializing in um, designer vintage fashion focused on 1930s to 70s to 80s. I die. We're going to get into all of that. <laughs> I'm dead. And you worked at Poshmark.
0: i yeah. just
1: dead. Uh, I'm dead. And so, yeah, incredibly excited to be here. This is like really my jam.
0: It's so fun. Um, And I we're going to delve into all the different things and all your tips and tricks. But tell me a little bit about the genesis of a day and where it comes from
1: and why you guys decided to, to create it. Yeah, absolutely. For us, it was very, like a very natural thing. So Nina and I had met in an office where we were traveling a lot and very restricted by office wear. Mm. And especially as um, offices became more casual and you could wear more things, it still felt like it wasn't enough. And so Nina was a former national level gymnast in Germany and so she'd always grown up wearing you know like Nike and all this clothing that was very functional very breathable and I didn't you know work out until I was about 23 <laughs> and I did my yoga teacher training and I realized mm-hmm. that my whole wardrobe um which was mostly contemporary designer fashion mm-hmm. was so at odds with the kind of movement that I wanted to do mm. and what we realized was there was so much you know um technology and fabrics being created and things that you could do that wasn't being really put out into fashion because retailers really controlled so much of that supply chain mm-hmm. and what we wanted to do which was to create garments that were very versatile that you really could do anything in but that each item was breathable, comfortable, versatile, but also made out of incredibly innovative fabrics, such as, you know, with seaweed, you know, recycled post consumable fabrics. That was incredibly exciting for us. And we realized that by owning that relationship with the consumers, that we could make these garments and really figure out what our customers wanted and then deliver it to them. But for us, it was really about what does this wardrobe of the future look like? And for us, it was clear that in the future, we're going to just buy a lot fewer items and a lot of the items that we think of as like you know fashion fashion those maybe we'll rent or you know we'll buy fewer of but that foundation of your wardrobe what you're spending 70 to 80 percent of your time in that you should be able to do so much more with. You shouldn't have to change outfits. It should be so much more comfortable. And I think our customers, when, you know, we listen to them, become so excited. They're wearing our clothing to work. They're also wearing it to travel. Those are our biggest two use cases. But it's because they're sleeping overnight on a red-eye flight and mm. our clothing is what, you know, the happiest and the most comfortable wearing.
0: So when did you start the business?
1: Uh, We uh, launched in 2015.
0: Okay. So very recently. What was the first, what did you launch with? And from what I understand, starting a fashion business and, you know, consumer retail is extremely difficult. So like, tell me a little bit about that process.
1: Absolutely. Honestly, we didn't really know what we were doing. Like, (laughs) we had... We thought that there was maybe like, you know, you go into factory and then press a button and the clothing would come out <laughs> on the other
0: side. Yeah, that's exactly what I think happens. Right? So.
1: Yeah. But, you know, we, Nina went to um, Central St. Martin's in London and mm-hmm. she did a sportswear design course and cool. she came back and she had some sketches. And I just started like at one point, you know, calling phone numbers in the, the phone book. And I would have these conversations where someone would pick up on the other side and say hello. And I would say hello are you a factory? And sometimes it's <laughs> a say yes. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of factories and you know, mills, they don't really have websites. They're not like mm-hmm. super kind of connected. It's kind of hush-hush. So it was really by, we called every single person who knew anything about fashion and had conversations with them. And those were how we made our first couple of contacts. We also went to design fairs, uh, Premier Vision in Paris and felt fabrics and talked to different vendors. But ultimately, you know, you know, we our backgrounds are primarily in business. Mm-hmm. So we just talked to a lot of women and we know as women mm-hmm. like us. We asked them what their problems were, mm-hmm. what they were uncomfortable wearing, what, you know, their needs were. And using that data, you know, we put together our first seven pieces mm-hmm. and that's what we ended up launching with. And it was meant to be a capsule wardrobe, which really could take you, you know, throughout your whole week. And, and would, what are the seven items? Um, so there was, you know, a top a pair of leggings a jacket a pair of track pants but it was just you know clothing that you could go to work with mm-hmm. you could you know go to the restaurant with you could work out with you could go on a plane but a lot of our core customers you know they're very busy they might go from the flight straight to the TED talk or something. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted it to be ultimately so comfortable that they wouldn't need to worry about that part of their wardrobe. Mm.
0: And I think that, of course, I'm sure you can attest to this too, especially working in finance, the assumptions or sort of biases leveled against what women wear at work is very real. And how did that affect sort of your design and your thinking?
1: So a lot of what we create is very classic. We definitely do have our design edge, but what we want to do is, you know, create the best white shirt that you've ever had. Mm -hmm. So our best seller item is actually something called the Something Borrowed Shirt. And it's just, it's a classic white shirt. It's made with a slight men's cut, but, you know, it's kind of virtually indestructible. It's so comfortable. You know, it's wrinkle-free. It's incredibly breathable. But the fabric we make it with is... Um, has a silk-like hand feel Mm -hmm. and I think that was part of what you know was often missing in the last couple of years when fashion went sustainable when you know we started creating fabrics out of plastic bottles often the end feel didn't really feel like the natural fabrics that we were used to and so everything for us has to pass that hand feel test it has Mm -hmm. to feel you know almost luxurious Mm -hmm. and so a lot of you know our fabrics and the drape and cut um, you know, our customers really come from every walk of life, but a lot of them work in offices or, they, you know, they're doctors and a key piece of feedback and we should definitely do something about it is people often say, wow, we didn't actually expect your products to be this good uh, <laughs> from the photography on the website because it's so yeah. hard to capture. Them. Right,
0: right. It's interesting because it's funny, like I live in DC, I come to New York a lot and I was noticing I'm staying in Soho I was as I was walking over here to the podcast studio more than I've ever seen, there are all these brands desperate to catch up with sustainability. So like I was just in my walk, like these big stores in Soho, like big designers are like more with less. Like the future is sustainable. And like they're they're all like, oh, fuck, like we have to hop on mm-hmm. all of this. But like what makes your brand sustainable in your eyes and what parts of sustainability and fashion really matter to you? to us it was
1: never really about being sustainable that just felt like such a core assumption Mm -hmm. that you know we never really even spoke about it for like you know i think when you start a business you're supposed to like write a business plan and write your mission statement oh yes with fine point i was like yeah Yeah." (laughs) and it wasn't actually until like we did this team get together um and everyone you know we wrote down the companies we really admired and who we looked up to we were like actually in each of the areas in each of our roles we're all optimizing for this and we actually we don't like to use the term you know sustainability mm-hmm. or like we are sustainable because we want that to only be the case when we're like 100 percent carbon neutral and mm-hmm. a fully close the loop mm-hmm. and the truth is and we're happy to say this we're not there yet mm-hmm. but we are very transparent on where we are which is you know we work with a lot of factories and a lot of mills and um, who really prioritize that mm-hmm. and so some of these mills they use you know 100% solar energy and that's really cool mm-hmm. or you know we are this year we'll ha- the majority of our products will have recycled fabrics which is really cool but when we see a claim by you know especially a larger company mm-hmm. saying we are sustainable mm-hmm. we know that that's not going to happen it's mm-hmm. going to be really difficult for that to be the case but that is where we should and everyone should work towards Mm -hmm. and provide full transparency to all consumers, both to, you know, educate all of us, but also to show where we are and where we're working towards. There are so
0: many terms being thrown around, I guess for listeners, and I've talked about this before, like what does the closed loop
1: mean to you of fashion? For us, uh, we want all Production and all waste to come together in that one loop. Mm-hmm. So, at the moment, if customers are no longer, you know, want to have our items in their wardrobe, we offer a recycling facility mm-hmm. and we'll give you credit back towards your next order. That's something that we're able to do. But I think if in the future, what we would really like to get to is to get all the waste and all the other energy and other effects. Uh, that are produced as part of the production process for really that to have a counter against. Mm -hmm. Um, So at the moment, another thing that we do because one of our core use cases for our products is travel. Mm -hmm. We know people love to travel on our products, but obviously it has a lot of carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. So we offer carbon offsets for Mm -hmm. people to buy on our website Mm -hmm. because we think it's very corely linked. Mm -hmm. And we have started. to to carbon offset some of what we do in in the company so we offset all of our flights but there's obviously a lot more that we can do
0: yeah so what do you think it'll take or what do you want to see from the fashion industry that doesn't have this as a core principle it's funny because like so much of these companies are working backwards because they realize how much consumers care and how far they've gotten with like lighting clothes on fire so you know what do you want to see in the fashion industry change
1: A lot more information and transparency. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting to us because I would say so much of what we do, we don't put online. And part of that is, unfortunately, you know, if you overwhelm the customer with information, it actually doesn't help them to purchase. But, you know, the people who are very motivated, they'll write into customer experience and ask a lot of incredibly detailed questions around, you know, where is this made? How how can I offset this? Like, uh, is this vegan? And... I think, you know, similar to the food industry, it would be really interesting to have much more of a basis of that. Mm -hmm. I know there's definitely been a working industry um, led in part by Mm -hmm. H&M on creating indexes for this. But at the very least, I'd love for all companies to really provide information on all the factories and all the mills that they work with Mm -hmm. and, you know, to, to... also have an understanding of what happens afterwards. So if we don't sell these items, what happens to them? Are they thrown away? Do they go get discounted? And then also for consumers to have a commitment to the items. So if you purchase this and you no longer want it, what happens to that afterwards?
0: And hopefully some of it ends up not your brand necessarily, but... Uh, It's a nice segue into the world of secondhand. For sure. Are you a second year as a, a, sounds like you're a prolific secondhand shopper and seller.
1: I mean, it really started because I think I was just very poor. As a kid, like I Where did you grow up? um, I grew up about an hour west of London. Mm. But my parents are from Beijing, Mm. and I was born in Beijing. And I think we were like, like, you know, be middle class in China. And then when we moved to the UK, we had to just buy all of our clothing secondhand at charity shops and that was more out of need and then I don't know exactly when it happened I think maybe I read you know a copy of British Vogue at one point and I was so fascinated that clothing could cost you know like 5,000 pounds and I realized that if you went on eBay and you bought a pair of like you know 1980s Balenciaga pants that that might only cost like 50 pounds but then I remember there was this Christian Dior skirt And it was lined with um, a silk Duchess liner. And I never felt anything like it. And I realized that there was something about, you know, fashion at the very kind of end where it was made with such painstaking detail that that was almost like a totally different experience. But I could actually access that through vintage fashion. And at the time, um, eBay actually uh, didn't correct its misspellings. So it turns out a lot of people can't spell Dolce & Gabbana, how mm. many Ns, how many Bs. Chanel was really difficult for people as well. And so I would just, you know, buy like an Yves Saint Laurent jacket and then I'd resell it for like a couple of days later for a couple of hundred pounds more. Wow! Um, and that was really like how I grew to love clothing. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, now at, you know, a day, like what we're suggesting is that you replace items in your wardrobe with something so much better it really reminds me of that moment when I was younger where I was like, this is, fashion could be so much more, right? Like that what we're buying on the high street is nowhere near enough and that fashion could be breathable and wrinkle-free and, you know, be so versatile and you wouldn't have to worry about stains and all of these things. And instead, you know, we have accepted this, you know, equilibrium that we have to dry clean things, and it's okay that you wear something twice and then it shrinks and turns pink, mm-hmm. and we just don't believe that mm. Mm-hmm. Did you keep the skirt? I I pretty much I, and I wonder. If, do you use the same thing? I feel like I rotate through my whole wardrobe yes, so quickly. I call it just like a yeah. turnstile style.
0: Like, and sometimes I'll buy things yeah. I've talked about, like that. I know at that moment have really high resale value, and I've yeah. gotten in, and I'm like, shit, I have to sell yeah. them. People are like you can like keep it and wear. It. I was like, no,
1: I have to sell it because I know that I'll like make money it right now. Yeah. It's interesting because I think it's definitely the items that um you know I haven't owned for very long that I'll sometimes miss. But I I think it's wonderful that you know in the way that. I interact with clothing, like they start to have memories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell me about being an eBay power seller. It's funny, I've sold for a really long time.
0: I would say the one big mystery to me, the one site that overwhelms me is eBay. So do you still use it? And like, what are your hot tips?
1: Yeah. I haven't used it for a long time. It was really like, I would say about two years and I was very young. So I had a lot of spare time. Mm-hmm. So I think I was about 16 mm-hmm. and it was until I was 18. During that time, I think um I took over like two of the rooms in my parents' house and then they basically told me that I had to like stop because it it was getting ridiculous (laughs) um but like my specialism was you know very much like 1930s to 80s fashion but it also went down to like you know Cocktail dresses from like the forties and the fifties,
0: and you were finding it all on eBay or also in stores, also
1: eBay. Um, sometimes in like uh, like high end charity and thrift shops in mm-hmm. the UK. But I do think that it was easier to source in the UK. Mm. Um, but I I definitely I remember like selling to. Um, U.S. buyers quite often and people around the world but um, but it was, it was incredibly difficult because I definitely like I didn't have the photography fully figured mm-hmm. out and it's looking back at it it's amazing for me that I, I got so far but I do think that it was just a very nascent website at the time yeah yeah so
0: what do you remember what were some of your like biggest margins or like what you bought for the least and then
1: sold for the most? A yellow salon smoking jacket definitely. Um, <gasps> mm-hmm. It had like a velvet lapel. I think I bought it for under ten pounds and <gasps> I sold it for like seven or eight hundred. Oh my god, um, amazing! I was very happy as a kid, but, but yeah. I really loved the jacket, but it just like had to go. No, I yeah. I, I, I have the same I yeah. have the
0: same compulsion. So. Where are you currently secondhand shopping? I'd love recommendations in New York, and then maybe in London if you still spend time there.
1: I I do almost all of my shopping online now. Oh, interesting. Um, so tell me where you shop. Uh, it's mostly Poshmark and the Real Real. And but yesterday, uh, my co-founder Nina actually recommended this app to me called Wardrobe and it's uh, I, I might get this wrong so if the people from no wardrobe check. here yeah, are, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's it's like rent the wrong way but it's your wardrobe gets uploaded to it oh. so they did a collection for me yesterday and I put all of my clothing in the box mm-hmm. and it was more like you know the occasion dresses that I don't really wear mm-hmm. and other people can rent it from you mm. um, and then you get paid like 70 to 80% of the total
0: it's funny because I tried to do that one time it totally makes sense with yeah. a piece that I've talked about I, for my brother's wedding there was this like one jumpsuit That I decided I had to have, and it was on hold by someone that worked at a secondhand store. And I offered to pay her to just wear it for the night. Awesome, she said no. What? <laughs> no. I was wow. like, please, I'll give you a bunch of money and just let
1: me borrow it. That's really interesting. Wait, so you
0: used to work at Poshmark. Like, I tell did. Tell me a little bit
1: about that. So I joined Poshmark out of business school. It just really, you know, I think given all of my interests, it made a huge amount of sense. And at the time, it was much more than it was today, but it was just so happy. Um, and I've made some amazing friends on Poshmark, and I think that was really the beauty that commerce could be integrated so much with community, and that, you know, you would meet someone who was your size, your shoe size, your dress size, who also liked Isba Balmerang, and instantly you be friends because you had that beautiful connection with each other and i remember once i was visiting new york and one of my friends on poshmark realized that i was in a restaurant like two blocks away from me and she like diverted her husband and huh? like they came over to say hi um there's another friend called caroline and i met her at um, the poshmark conference in las vegas oh i've posh- been really
0: wanting to go <laughs> you should go yeah. it's
1: really fun posh fest and we probably only met for like 10 minutes um she was one of the panelists she had she, big following on poshmark mm-hmm. And later when we launched A Day, she took part in our referral program and I think she referred like 150 people to wow. it. Wow, that is a and, huge number. Yeah, and we're now like, you know, good friends. Like, you know, we've talked about going for weekends away together and it was really through the power of like you know you know that you love the same thing it's the power of the internet and unusual
0: communities I would say Poshmark too I have a Poshmark friend and we like text because we like the same yeah. stuff and she is just like a random woman in California and she's just like my random Poshmark friend and one thing I love is that you know please rate review and subscribe uh, to this podcast I love it but also people have started leaving me messages like on my Poshmark That's so great. about how much they love the podcast which like just literally kills me like I can't think of anything I like more and I'm like like, I love that you could write an <laughs> iTunes review. You could send an email. You could do social media. But like instead, you chose to write it on my Poshmark. It's like it's it's really fun. and It's really cool. So you're mostly shopping online. What's something you're really hunting for right now?
1: I it, it was interesting because actually yesterday I went through a lot of my photos. So I used to have very long hair, like you know almost waist length, mm. and now I have like I guess my hairdresser would call it pixie cut, but I really hate that word. You have short hair. Uh, I have short hair. Um, and my clothing used to be a lot more colorful, mm. and so I want to introduce more color in. Um, but I'm very like picky about the way that fabrics feel; like that's very important to me. Between and, like
0: being a power seller and now running a brand, very, like yeah, you know, too much almost.
1: Yeah, but it isn't. So you know, I think um, ultimately now I just want to look for pieces that I will you know really love, which really does allow me to do more with less. And so that I will have to do less of this sort of cyclical turnover. Mm. I remember this one story that I love from Poshmark. Um, This woman wrote to us because um, she said that she had managed to sell so much of her wardrobe that it was actually saving her marriage, because she had so much clothing that her husband was about to divorce her, and it was very serious because yeah. um, she was from like a culture which you know just like there was a lot of like you know rigor in mm-hmm. that, and I sort of you know think about that a lot in that mm-hmm. you know we think about our clothing, especially when we don't work in the fashion industry, as just something we wear, but it really stems way beyond all of that.
0: It's expression. It's how we present to the world or how we present to ourselves and feel good. And yeah. it's it's so many other things. So what is – I mean you've you've bought and sold so many things. Do you have a favorite find that you still have or it's all gone or what's one yeah. of your favorite finds?
1: I had a pair of Alexander Wang ankle boots which were sort of from a pebbled leather. And this happened a lot on the Poshmark team. I got it from one of my colleagues on the team. Mm-hmm. So often they would like posh something or get something from me. If know. I worked at Poshmark, I would be so fucked. <laughs> I would save zero dollars. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people complained about that a lot. they look at the balances and be like, oh, crap. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the girls, we were all like the same size. So we just like swap within each other. And it was like, well, you, do you want this? Do you want this? Do you want this? Um, and then actually, like, when I ended up leaving San Francisco, I just brought in like everything in my wardrobe and like everyone just like took for and i was like look you know just if you manage to sell on poshmark or whatever like just make a donation oh, so, <laughs> um yeah but then i actually had one um bad incident with a consignment store in new york mm. um where they didn't end up paying anyone and they oh, went wow. out of business and they second time around it i think it was called cavalier's closet okay. on east 9th street and then I posted a Yelp review mentioning this, and a ton of the other girls wrote to me and said they had the same experience and asked if we could all file a lawsuit together. Wow. But um, it turned out that they had put all of our stuff on the real real because some of the stuff was custom, and yeah. I like I had this silver sequined like Marc Jacobs jacket oh. that I had given to them, and it was just like it was so unique. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, they had just sent everything to the real real. Wow. Um, but it was just a, like. I still believe in the street, but, you know, so much of it is actually based on trust because, you know, you we believe that we all love, the, you know, the same things. And I think ultimately that's around, you know, not only the internet but it relies on you to be good people and believe that everyone else is a good person as Mm -hmm. well like not that everyone on eBay or Poshmark or whoever is trying to scam you
0: yeah and no I mean I've been scammed I talk about an incident from Tokyo 7 where I still shop about like they sold me a fake bag I wouldn't take it back there's so many issues with authenticity it's just like a huge game of whack-a-mole like the fakes keep getting better and better and better and something comes out one week and then they're fakes
1: the next week it's completely insane do you still sell um, not really. I will sell from time to time on Poshmark, uh, but I also do use uh, ThreadUp as well, mm-hmm. um, just to. But I don't. Um, I would say my wardrobe doesn't move around that much mm-hmm. anymore.
0: Well, so what are some tips though? Since mm-hmm. you are a woman who's sold yeah. many
1: things, what are some of your tips for people that want to sell? Yeah, uh, the photography has to be great. Mm-hmm. I think you know whether it's on Poshmark or on eBay, but any platform which is very visual, you just have to really nail the photography. Yeah. And so how
0: do you nail the photography?
1: Uh, I would say take it on someone else, uh, mm. and on a person rather than on a mannequin. The lighting should be really great. Um, if it's an item of higher value, so over $100, you're expecting someone else to part with over $100 on, you know, a pretty small screen. And so I'd probably show it in a couple of different styles and really record as much information as you can and be really truthful and honest about it. Mm -hmm. So if it's not a mint condition, say that, rather than, you know, uh, risk or return. Um, But I, I think that the liquidity on Poshmark has been incredible lately. Like, I would say everything I've tried to sell in the last couple of you know, months has really gone in like the 24 to 48 hours. So I think like the more... What's your Poshmark? Drop your Poshmark in here. (laughs) Uh, It's at Megsi. Okay. so i will share that too. I'm sure you have great stuff.
0: So how do you get great lighting Mm. if you just have an iPhone Mm. and you're like a
1: normal person? Yeah, for sure. What are your lighting tips? You can just walk outside, um, but be very careful about the time of day Mm. and also what the weather is like. So if it's super cloudy or even super sunny, go when it's, you know, like fairly bright, so probably 10 or 11 a.m. or like, Two to three p.m. depending on where you are. No, obviously. this is like great, great um, tips. But yeah, I, I think anything that's on a flat lay that you've just laid on the ground—if it costs more than like forty or fifty dollars—I think like I personally would struggle to kind of sell it mm. um, because someone really has to understand what they're getting into. Mm-hmm. But if you search for the item on Google Images and if you can find original images for it, that's probably the easiest way to go. And that's what I—that's what I do. Yeah. yeah because i'm lazy
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i'm like i don't know how kosher this is to just rip these images yeah. but uh here's how it looks on a model with great lighting so and what about sell? so you you send to the thread app you send to the real real yeah. you sell some on poshmark do you sell in any stores in new york not anymore after that um, yeah that's really and, shitty that yeah. and it's it's i talk a lot about and think a lot about the culture of consignment because i grew up in those yeah. stores and, I, you know, I think it's amazing, the explosion of this industry. It's one of the reasons why I created this podcast. But I do – I want that sort of culture to continue yeah. of, like, being friends with shop owners and, like, finding sure. little shops around the corner.
1: I think that was yeah. part of the, you know, real, like, genuine surprise I had about Instant because, like, I'd gotten to know them mm-hmm. over, like, you know, the course of, like, I would say several months, if not over a year. Mm-hmm. And I'd been to that shop several times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were – I lived half. Block down the street from them, um, and I bought from them, and you know, like we had an ongoing relationship, and so that's why I think it really hurt. Um, and I, I still have. There's a um, a shop in London called Dress for Less on St John's Street in Clerkenwell, and you know that lady still like follows me on social media. We still message each other, and but I yeah, do I think, have like consignment yeah, moms all over the world, completely. <laughs> yeah, um, and but I do think it's it is very competitive in New York, just because there's yeah. so many sample sales that yeah part of the reason why I do online in New York is it's hard to get a good price offline mm-hmm.
0: so where are you sh- where, what do you recommend in London I haven't done a guide we do city guides I I don't, yeah. haven't secondhand shopped in London since like 2007 so where are you shopping or where
1: do you recommend um, I mean it's also been a long time I think Dress for Less is fantastic Okay, but the best finds I've had in London have been actually the real charity shops mm-hmm. um, I love charity shops yeah. and I think the, the charity shops in London are a little bit different they're much more upmarket than the Goodwill shops. And especially if you go to the right area, like Chelsea, South AKA Kensington, where the rich people are. Yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, sometimes they'll just be like, jimmy choos everywhere and i think london is a little bit more like you know bling bling there's a lot of cocktail parties black tie there's a lot of good stuff in the west london area
0: and explain a little bit i've explained it some but the difference between a charity shop and like a regular consignment store Mm -hmm.
1: so um a charity shop is just someone donating all of the items it's much more like a goodwill shop but it benefits a specific charity like mariscopes or a particular cancer charity um london doesn't have as many consignment stores as new York
0: everyone always talks about portobello road do you think the prices are any good
1: uh i've struggled with portobello road it's it seems very highly touristy mm-hmm. well, yeah, um, it's a really a tourist. fun <laughs> yeah um and there's you know there's a lot of fun things but i you know i would say for like secondhand vintage consignment shopper who really wants to you know find that item yeah um i don't think that's necessarily where it goes so the place i mentioned earlier dressed for less it's in clark islington which is sort of where like you no, know, normal Londoners might live. But it, it's like a large enough and she has really good stock, really good turnover. And I would say that, you know, each kind of neighborhood probably has like one gem like that. Yeah. Um yeah. Really cool.
0: Well, so happy to have you here. Plug a day, tell you know, tell us where to find you and the brand and
1: Absolutely. We have a showroom in New York. It's at 415 West Broadway. So West Broadway and Spring Street. You can come in, you can try everything on um, or, you know, make you a cup of tea if you're British or something <laughs> else if you're not. Uh, but we also recently opened a store in San Francisco at 2011 Fillmore Street and the cross street is California. Um, so that was incredibly exciting for us. But you can always find us at www.thisisaday.com or follow us on Instagram at A A D A Y. Um, And I'll link to all of this in the show notes.
0: Meg, thank you so much for being here. As always, you can find us online at ingopodcast.com. We are on the social medias, Instagram and Twitter at ingopodcast. Email hello at ingopodcast. I guess follow me on Poshmark at fine MC. <laughs> uh, Drop me, Drop me a hello and we'll see you soon.